Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The United States has been engaged in war since the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, but nonstop warfare is far less exceptional than it might seem. In his new book, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, David Vine, a professor of anthropology at American University, contends that we've been at war or invaded other countries for most of the years since we gained independence from England. By drawing on historical and firsthand anthropological research in 14 countries and territories, Professor Vine demonstrates how our leaders across generations have locked the United States into a self-perpetuating system of permanent war and how that long history of military expansion shapes our daily lives, whether we know it or not. The book is published by the University of California Press and brings David Vine to our show. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be with you. If you ask people to name the wars that the United States has been involved in, uh, there's a pretty long list. Uh, they most likely list the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, Mexican War, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, the two world wars, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And that's a long list. But you write that the Congressional Research Service and other sources reveal that the U.S. military has been at war in all but 11 years of our history? That's uh, essentially accurate. Yes, uh, war, of course, is difficult to define, but the United States uh, military has been involved in some form of war, other conflict in all but, but 11 years of, of U.S. history. That's 95% of the, the years in U.S. history, and the list goes far beyond, indeed, the, the countries you named to include places as far-flung as Honduras, of course, Vietnam, but uh, uh, Greece, uh, all the nations and peoples of, of North America with whom the U.S. military fought across the late 18th and early and throughout the 19th century, uh, Turkey, uh, Peru, Tripoli, and far, far beyond. And, of course, there's uh, the Spanish-American War, which you say should have another name, perhaps, because you say that the names of wars are usually political. Uh, that was, brought us all over the uh, the world, and actually made us into a colonial power, didn't it? Well, that 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 is uh, frequently the the view that that, <clears throat> that we read in the history books that uh, the United States entered a, a period of a period of empire, imperial age, with the so-called Spanish-American War of 1898. Uh, indeed, part of the the history I, I tell in the United States of War is that 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 the the colonial period for the United States uh, began with independence. Of course, you know, the 13 colonies were occupying Native people's lands. Um, so de facto, uh, with independence, uh, the United States was an occupying power. And part of the longer story I, I tell and why the name of Columbus is in the subtitle of the book is right. that we have to understand U.S. history and the history of U.S. wars in the larger context of European imperialism in the Americas and see how the United States, again, virtually from independence, uh, models itself after the European empires and itself becomes an empire very quickly uh, expanding beyond the borders of the 13 colonies and then states uh, across North America, conquering lands, conquering Native American peoples, nations, um, and of course, uh, killing and dispossessing literally millions in the process. 
Um, so the United States is a, a colonial nation from from its founding, continues to be a colonial nation throughout the, eight, the rest of the 18th and the 19th century, and then uh, begins expanding uh, beyond North America with uh, the War of 1898 that uh, brought the U.S. military into, into conflict, not just with Spain, but of course with uh, Filipino uh, insurgents who were trying to gain their independence from their former colonial ruler, the Spanish Empire, the declining Spanish Empire. Uh, and it, that, that war indeed continued until 1913 with uh, U.S. forces uh, moving from, from uh, fighting uh, Spanish troops to, to fighting uh, Filipino insurgents who were seeking to gain their independence. Should we make a distinction between war and combat action? I, I do in, in the book, and uh, I have both uh, an appendix with the, the full list of, of U.S. wars and other forms of combat. Uh, and with uh, the press, the uh, University of California Press was nice enough to actually print the, the full list of, of mm. wars and other forms of combat uh, on the, the end sheets, uh, the inside and yeah. of the front and back cover. Uh, and there are yeah, so it, many. It's indeed. really it's shocking how many. Uh, Name places are listed there on those two pages. The flyleaf, indeed, and 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 that you know was part of what I'm hoping to draw people's attention to. That uh, in, in at the times I think many in the United States think of of the country as a, a peace loving nation, and in, indeed I think most people in the United States are peace loving. Uh, but there's been, uh, I think, uh, a, a reluctance to, to face uh, the history of, of U.S. wars, the full history, and, and to get away from the kinds of celebratory uh, depictions of, of wars and, and usually bloodless uh, depictions that, that, of course, draw our attention away from the horrific costs of these wars. And that's one of the, the things that, that I wanted to make sure was, was a, a focus of the book from the beginning to the end, that that wars are not uh, are not should not be celebrated. Um, that of course uh, there there are um, rare times um, where you know indeed of course uh, the defeat of the Axis powers uh, was important. Um, but but there are no victors in war. Um, any any phenomenon, any event that took the lives of upwards of 60 million people as as World War II did. No one, no one is a, a, a victor there. No one um, can celebrate anything other than the end of that sort of violence. Um, and uh, be far beyond World War II, I, I want us to, and I think as a nation, I would like to encourage us to, to focus on uh, the death and destruction that war brings, not just the sort of Hollywood-style depictions that, that we unfortunately are fed on a regular basis, not just you know, when we go to the movies, but in our history books that so often treat uh, the U.S. military in the United States as, as the heroes and, and everyone else as, as the villains, when I think the vast majority of, of people involved in wars on all sides are, are victims. And as you say, uh, most of the conflicts we've been involved in over the last 250 years have been offensive in nature, but with the exception of well, maybe both world wars, weren't we quite reluctant about getting into those wars? Would we have entered World War II if Japan hadn't attacked Pearl Harbor? Well, that's, of course, difficult to say and impossible to know. 
the United States was, I think, uh, de facto uh, a, a combatant, um, or certainly involved on the side of the Allies uh, from from the beginning of the war in, in a variety of ways. Um, one of the ways that I, I point to was a year before, uh, more than a year before the United States formally enters the war, we have this uh, destroyers for bases deal, which is, again, sort of often overlooked in tellings of, of the, the history of, of the United States and the history of World War II, but I think is actually deeply significant and, and, and has been, been overlooked. Um, because what, what did the United States do there? Uh, Churchill and Roosevelt made a deal, a deal where the United States delivered to Great Britain 50 World War I-era destroyers in exchange for the right to build bases in British colonies in the Americas. Uh, and this was, uh, in, in a sense, a, a new expansion of, of U.S. control of territory through the mechanism of U.S. military bases. And this uh, is a central theme in the book, that U.S. military bases abroad, that is U.S. military bases on other people's territories, whether in a British colony or uh, a sovereign nation, uh, have been a major form of, of power and influence and control that, that the U.S. government has used really virtually since independence. Uh, that's the first U.S. bases abroad were built on, of course, Native American people's lands. Uh, later, they were built overseas, literally overseas, and uh, beginning, uh, or actually even before uh, the War of 1898. Um, but during World War II, we see an expansion in the number of U.S. military bases abroad, such that the United States comes to possess over the course of the, the war, beginning with this destroyers for bases deal, U.S. comes to possess a, a collection of foreign bases that's larger than that of any people or empire or country in, in world history. And, and this collection of bases and indeed actually basically stays in place once the war is over, despite the end of, of combat. Uh, many of the bases closed, but a huge infrastructure of bases remains and has remained to this day, um, such that today the United States has somewhere around 800 military bases wow. outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C., in around 80 countries and colonies. I, I, collection still remains the largest likely in, in world history, and again, is a form of, of, of U.S. power and control uh, that often is overlooked, but it, it is central to understanding how, how the United States has acted in the world and why the U.S. government has gotten into so many wars. One of the central arguments in, in, in the United States of war is that U.S. military bases abroad, when you, when you build bases abroad, when you build bases beyond your own territory, when you build them on other people's lands, these bases tend not to be defensive in nature. Often they're depicted that way by, by U.S. elites, by U.S. leaders, but they tend not to be defensive in nature, history shows. They tend to be offensive in nature. They tend to bring about war. And indeed, one of the central arguments in the book is that bases abroad, not just they don't, they don't just enable war, they actually make war more likely. Uh, so I, I sort of riff on the old line from the, the move, baseball movie Field of Dreams. The line in the movie was, you know, if you build them, uh, if you build it, they will come. 
in the book, I capture this argument that bases abroad uh, make war more likely by saying, if we build them, wars will come. If we build bases abroad, wars will come. And similarly, if we build an empire, which it, it described a bit about how that empire developed, uh, we shouldn't be surprised when wars come. And this is not the first book in which you've talked about the the bases and their, their impact. You've written previous books as well. But um, is this uh, where your uh, background as an anthropologist comes in? I, it's a good question. I'm wondering I, how I, an anthropologist I, I, winds up writing a book called The United States of War. <laughs> Yeah, and in, in, indeed, indeed. I mean, in, in many ways, I, I think uh, the the social science disciplines are not very useful. I think uh, increasingly people work across the, the disciplines, across uh, anthropology, sociology, political science, economics, history, and that's very much the, the kind of scholarship I try to practice that combines different disciplines. And, and uh, but I, but I think um, anthropology is helpful because it does uh, take me, uh, well, I've been lucky enough to, to visit bases around the world and see the impacts and investigate the impacts of, of bases around the world today and, and historically. And it's brought me in, in contact with, with the people who are affected by, by U.S. bases and, and, and U.S. wars, uh, which I think, again, has, has made me uh, make the human impacts of war a focal point of, of the book, uh, but in, indeed, I, I've been writing about about bases now for for more than 19 years uh, since I was living in New York and listening to you around uh, 2001. In fact, I I began this work on bases uh, a month before the attacks of 9/11. I was living in Brooklyn and um, was introduced to one military base in particular that I have some vague knowledge of, of really just uh, heard about during the first Gulf War. 1991, and that is a based on an island called Diego Garcia, in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And, and while I had some vague idea that the U.S. had a base there and played a role in the first war against uh, Iraq, um, I had no idea how this base came to be. And, and I got this very lucky phone call from a lawyer who was representing a, a group of people called Chagosians who had been forced from their homes uh, during the creation of this base on Diego Garcia. And this had happened not in the late 18th century or the 19th century when Native American peoples were being displaced and dispossessed. This case of displacement caused by the, the construction of space had taken place in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, and the call from the lawyer led me to do some research on behalf of, of the lawyer and the, the, the exiled Chagosian people. Um, and it opened my eyes also to this really world of, of U.S. military bases that encircle the globe and, and opened my eyes to the effects of these bases and led me to want to ask questions like, wait, why, why does the United States have a military base in the middle of the Indian Ocean, thousands of miles from the nearest U.S. border? Does the United States need a military base on, on Diego Garcia? Does it need a base in the Indian Ocean? Is this base in any sense protecting U.S. citizens, protecting the United States? And for that matter, does the United States need the hundreds of bases that it maintains abroad? Uh, are these bases protecting the United States? Are they protecting 
U.S. citizens? Are they protecting the globe? Could we be spending the money that are, is required to maintain and build and often expand these bases? Could it be spent better uh, to, to protect uh, U.S. citizens? Did they play a role in the reaction to uh, 9/11? Uh, Diego Garcia was was played a, a central role uh, in the U, in the Bush administration's George W. Bush administration's response to the attacks of 9/11. The, the base on Diego Garcia played a, a key role in the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and really every uh, conflict, every war the United States has waged. Uh, in the greater Middle East, and, and it actually provides a very painful and sad but, but helpful example in showing how, how U.S. bases abroad are, are not defensive in nature, how they have made it far too easy to launch wars that, just look at the wars since, since 9-11, that have been catastrophic uh, for the United States, for, for U.S. citizens, for U.S. taxpayers, but of course, most of all, catastrophic for the people in which the wars have been fought, the peoples of Afghanistan uh, and Iraq, of Yemen, of Somalia, and uh, at least 24 countries in which U.S. troops have fought since September 11, 2001. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is David Vine, whose latest book is The United States of War, A Global History of America's endless conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, although you object to the use of the word America and to, in that regard, and to the use of the, the name Columbus, but we'll get to that later. Um, I was wondering, um, so uh, how, how much money does it cost the United States taxpayers to keep these military bases open, especially the ones that are pretty much inactive? Yeah, so the United States is, is spending tens of billions of dollars every year uh, maintaining bases abroad. Um, there are, of course, thousands of, of military bases within the 50 states in Washington, D.C., but if we just look at the, the bases abroad, there are roughly 800 bases in around 80 countries and, and colonies. And I say roughly because the, even the Pentagon doesn't know how many bases it has abroad. And, of course, they, they keep some of them secret or secretive. Uh, but uh, by my most recent calculation, we're spending on the order of $51 billion a year wow. to maintain bases uh, abroad. And that doesn't count the salaries of the, the troops and civilians who work on them. I, I, I am pleased to say that, that, that and, and I, I get to this toward the end of the book, but I, I'm pleased to say that the, the story is not just a, a depressing one. Um, I, I think there are many reasons to be optimistic that this system of war can change, and I argue that it, uh, with some urgency, we must change this system and end this pattern of war. Uh, but there are people who are beginning to, to realize, really across the political spectrum and within the, the military itself, including the, the, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who are asking why the U.S. maintains so many bases abroad and, and whether uh, this money could be spent better uh, on the military and, and of course, to, to meet civilian needs. Um, but the, the especially right now. Especially right now. Especially, yeah. you know, now and on virtually every day, uh, the United States is losing more people than it lost on 9-11. 
uh, you know, the, the money that has been plowed into the military system since 2001 alone, and we're talking now we're talking about all the spending on the, the wars, bases, and the, the, the troops, and fighting all the money spent on the the, the war on terror, uh, the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and beyond, has cost U.S. taxpayers, by the estimation of the Cost of War Project at Brown University, $6.4 trillion, $6.4 trillion with a T, which is really an mm-hmm. incomprehensible amount of money. Um, but but it's the amount of money that, that I think really should make us weep if we think about what we didn't spend that money on. We should we should think about the, the destruction that that, that money uh, enabled, um, the, the lives, uh, literally millions of lives that have been lost in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we also have to think about what we didn't spend it on, things like, of course, pandemic preparedness. Um, that spending did not protect us from covid um, it did not provide universal health care that could have cared for people with COVID, um, let alone, you know, spending on our crumbling public school system, on our crumbling roads, our infrastructure, on, you know, making sure that everyone has a home, a roof over their head, rather than the millions of people who go to sleep every night on the streets. How does the number of our military bases compare to other world powers like China or Russia? So again, the U.S. Ma- maintains the, the largest collection of, of bases in, in world history, and the, the number of U.S. bases far exceeds that of any other power. Um, by my latest estimation, uh, somewhere between the U.S. has somewhere between 90 and 95 percent of the world's foreign military bases. There's a recent report that that Britain, in fact, has a larger number of foreign bases than than was previously understood. So. It could be that the, the percentage is actually something more like uh, 75%. But, you know, at most, the, the next uh, largest collection of bases would be would be Britain, if this, if this report is, is accurate, and they have somewhere between 100 and 200 foreign bases. Um, so it, it pales in comparison to the 800 uh, bases the U.S. maintains abroad. China, though, is, is a particularly important comparison. The Chinese government maintains one foreign military base in Djibouti, a single foreign military base. It maintains five if you count the uh, roughly four military bases on human-made islands in the South China Sea. Uh, And I think this is important because, uh, I mean, it's important for many reasons, but it shows us that that while the United States has has attempted to exert its influence and control around the world by, by pouring hundreds of billions of dollars every year into its military might, into uh, the system of bases and weaponry and a far larger system of permanent war that I describe in the book, the Chinese government, especially in recent decades, has been focused on uh, building up, of course, its economic might. And, you know, this is not, nothing about this is altruistic on behalf of the the Chinese government, uh, but it's notable that the last uh, war the Chinese government fought uh, outside its borders was in 1979. Well, we've had a buildup throughout Africa, but hasn't Russia also put bases in in Africa, especially in Syria? So uh, Russia has a a, a sizable collection of of foreign bases. Uh, France 
Britain uh, and Russia are the, 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 the powers that have the next largest collections of, of foreign bases. And indeed, most, most of uh, Russia's bases were former Soviet bases until recently, but uh, the, the Russian military indeed has, has expanded its presence in, in, in Syria in particular, um, but uh, in, in a variety of ways in, in, in parts of Africa, uh, and elsewhere, um, but again, the, the the Russian military in in, in it pales in comparison to the the power, size, and strength of the, the Soviet military, or it's the Soviet uh, foreign base collection. The Soviet Union had a, 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 a not insignificant collection of, of bases abroad, but but Russia uh, as a military threat uh, is nothing uh, compared to to that of the, the Soviet Union. Do the majority of the countries we have bases in welcome us there? Well, that's a, a complicated question. Um, I, I guess I would start by, by saying that around half of the, the countries in which uh, the U.S. maintains bases are, are led by undemocratic regimes, hmm. uh, less than democratic regimes, either outright you know, dictatorial or autocratic um, or, or less than democratic in a variety of ways. Um, so that to, to say that, that that the countries welcome us uh, in those countries, it's it's really the the elites, the the leaders, the people who are dominating those countries that that perhaps welcome us. Um, in other countries that are are more democratic, uh, it's complicated. Some some well leaders uh, certainly welcome uh, the U.S. presence. Uh, regular citizens um, have a variety of views. Many are supportive, including people uh, who work on the bases. Uh, others uh, are, are, are much uh, less supportive, um, and that's why we've seen very uh, sizable, in, in many cases, uh, anti-base movements in, in many of the countries where, where the U.S. has maintained bases abroad, especially since World War II, places like Okinawa, Japan, many are familiar with. Um, but and there have been attacks on our bases in Iraq. There, there have um, there have been attacks on our, our bases in our, our Iraq um, uh, since uh, well since, since the, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 and uh, and, and the subsequent occupation and, and in the the, the more recent uh, post uh, official withdrawal period um, the U.S. never fully withdrew from from Iraq and maintained. Troops and contractors and, and a small number of, of bases that have indeed come under attack, and you know this this points to the uh, a range of of opposition that that U.S. bases abroad has generated um, from peaceful protests in places like Okinawa or Vicenza, Italy, or Germany or Honduras, um, to violent attacks that, uh, especially in the Middle East, the the presence of U.S. bases and and, and troops. Uh, has generated, and uh, you know that in, in fact brings us back to, to 9/11. I mean, one of the Bin Laden's justifications for the attacks of 9/11 was the presence of U.S. bases and troops in the Muslim Holy Land, and U.S. bases and troops had been occupying Saudi Arabia since uh, before the, the first Gulf War, and they they stayed there. Uh, there's been a, a growing U.S. military presence throughout the Middle East. In predominantly Muslim lands, uh, since uh, really since Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, um, in his 
enunciation of the, the Carter Doctrine in 1980. There's been a very sizable uh, military buildup of, of bases and troops that has, has continued to expand, and, and the, the post-9/11 wars uh, saw this, this collection of, of troops and weaponry uh, expand even more dramatically. Uh, and research has shown that that's, that the presence of, of U.S. bases and troops in uh, the Middle East, in particular, has uh, actually helped the recruitment by terrorist organizations, by militant organizations that would use. Uh, terrorist attacks as a as a political tool, um, and just shows one of the many ways in which which maintaining bases abroad has frequently generated a kind of, of blowback, a kind of set of unintended consequences that actually come back to to hurt the United States. And again, the, the attacks of 9/11 are are a prominent example of that kind of blowback. Weren't a majority of our bases established after World War II as a way to keep peace and spread democracy, or had we started building bases before that war? So the, again, the, the first U.S. bases abroad were were indeed built, uh, really, uh, actually during the the War for Independence, um, and and immediately after, um, and we see uh, U.S. Army forts, in particular, built on Native American people's lands, playing a critical role in the expansion and colonization across North America as part of the expansion of the, the 13 states um, into what became a, a global empire. Uh, we saw small numbers of bases built uh, around uh, outside of North America toward the end of the 19th century. And in fact, early in the 19th century, there were sort of small leasehold bases in places as far flung as, as, as the Mediterranean and Africa and South America. Um, but indeed, it, uh, with, with the uh, exception of not insignificant, but um, a number of uh, bases uh, that grew up in Latin America during in interventions, invasions, and occupations uh, in the first part of the 20th century, uh, that, that the U.S. military undertook on behalf of U.S. elites and U.S. leaders. It, it is during World War II that, that the uh, collection of bases abroad reaches really unprecedented uh, breadth and, and depth. Um, and and, it, and as, as you pointed out, this collection of, of bases uh, is maintained during the, the Cold War and indeed expands, uh, especially uh, during the, the U.S. war uh, in in Korea um, in the the Korean conflict, um, and then again in, in the the war in Southeast Asia, uh, that we see another dramatic expansion in, in bases that that enabled the, the the U.S. war in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. Uh, the claim that U.S. bases spread democracy again, we need only look at the number of countries uh, that where where U.S. bases are located that are led by and dominated by undemocratic regimes to see that, that frequently U.S. bases abroad, quite to the contrary of spreading democracy, have actually blocked the spread of democracy. Have, Any examples? Uh, have, well, I, currently, you know, there are U.S. bases in, in almost every country in the, the, the Persian Gulf region except for uh, Iran and, and Yemen, and although the U.S. presence in Yemen and enabling that war has been, been very significant, um, so I, you know, I would argue that in any country led by an undemocratic regime, 
the, the presence of a, a U.S. base is, is a de facto endorsement of that the, the ruling government, and frequently far from, not just de facto, uh, U.S. presence actually gives uh, the U.S. government an incentive uh, to maintain that government in power, because the the, the, the fear is that if if a, a democratic uh, movement would would bring democracy to a country, that that the U.S. military would lose its access to uh, a base, uh, which or series of bases, which indeed has has happened at times. Um, so, in, in a variety of ways, uh, the presence of U.S. bases has has propped up. Uh, dictatorial regimes uh, and, and, and blocked uh, the, the spread of democracy, which I think, you know, to, to, I think should be troubling to, to all of us. And, uh, you know, part of what I call for at the end of the book is part of a, a series of, of proposals uh, to end this system of permanent war and, and stop this, this pattern of, of war um, is one of many proposals. I, I think we should we shouldn't have a single base in a, a country that is led by uh, an, an undemocratic regime. Uh, United States. I mean, I think this is complete contradiction to, to the values that I think most in the United States would would hold dear. Um, that we should indeed be attempting to encourage the spread of democracy, not in uh, coercive ways, not in ways that, that, that advance U.S. interests, but instead that, that support movements uh, for democracy. And, and, and that, for me, would mean closing immediately uh, bases uh, throughout the Middle East that, that are, are propping up uh, undemocratic governments. This is WBAI in New York, uh, Leonard Lopate at large. We are streaming at WBAI.org, and you can hear us over the air at 99.5 FM in New York. It matters a Okay, well, uh, before we get back to my conversation with Professor David Vine, I need to talk to you about something very important. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been severely hit by the pandemic, and a lot of our longtime supporters have had to drop their support for financial reasons, which is why we're asking anyone who is able to in this time of crisis to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and Leonard Lopez at large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is by calling right now, 516 620 3602. That's 516-620-3602, or by going online to give to WBAI.org. Becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is one great way to support the station without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time. And, and uh, we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy today in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. If you call 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org today, we will be happy to send you a copy of the book that we're discussing, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State by Professor David Vine. 
All you need to do is call 516-620-3602 right now or go to your computer or smartphone and visit give2wbai.org to sign up at the monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, or whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever is easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. You don't even need to mention the book to the call center operator or check any boxes online. Just Sign up right now to become a BAI buddy in the name of London Located Large, and my staff will take care of the rest. BAI buddies are a great way to support the show and give the station a steady source of support. But however you choose to contribute, the important thing is that you step up right now to support the show in this legendary radio station, the only station on the New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored. We, we don't get corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. So one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org online. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And from all of us at the show and the station, thank you very much. And we are back now with my guest, David Vine, whose latest book is The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts, from Columbus to the Islamic State. It is published by the University of California Press. Uh, okay, so let's um, look into this a bit more. We're currently engaged in ongoing military operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, and those are our two longest wars ever. Do we know how much money we've been spending waging wars in these two countries? And does it matter whether the, um, the administration in Washington uh, is Democratic or Republican? Sadly, it, it, it has proven not to matter very much in, in uh, really since World War II at very least. Uh, the, the war has been a bipartisan project, uh, sadly, that, that there, you know, especially, well, even in an era of unprecedented uh, division across uh, the political parties, uh, there has probably been no issue where there has been greater bipartisan agreement than than that of war and foreign policy uh, that the, the gigantic military budgets uh, that um, it's been funding the, the US military uh, have been supported by by Democrats and Republicans alike uh, this points to the importance of the, the military industrial complex that that President Eisenhower of course identified as he was leaving office and warned about uh, in January 1961. That's uh, uh, yeah. So that's a long time ago. It's become an entrenched reality in the 60 years since. And and Eisenhower called such war spending theft. Precisely, and I, I think there there is no better word to describe what uh, the war spending and military spending has, has meant. Uh, it's been a theft from from all of us who pay taxes. It's been a theft from the world in, in other senses. Uh, but, uh, you know, as, as he pointed out, every dollar that's spent on, on a, a bomber or a, a naval vessel is a dollar that's not spent on, proverbially speaking, butter or a child's education or uh, feeding someone or housing someone. Um, and, and I think we really need to see it that way, that, that we have been uh, we've we've been the victims of of a, of a horrific theft on a, a scale never really never before seen. Six point four trillion dollars spent on the 
the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and other parts of the global war on terror uh, since 2001, $6.4 trillion. Wow. I, I do, do want to encourage people to try to wrap their <laughs> minds around what that what that means and, and what that money hasn't been spent on and the suffering that has been entailed uh, and, and, and experienced by, by people in the United States because $6.4 trillion wasn't spent on education and infrastructure and health care and pandemic preparedness and so much more housing, affordable housing, on converting our economy to a, to a, a green economy that would combat global warming, climate change. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's a disaster on top of, of the disasters that the, the wars themselves since 9-11 have represented for, uh, for the United States, for the U.S. military personnel that have fought and, and died. Um, in these wars for the family members of military personnel who've lost family members who have or have uh, had family uh, their military personnel come back so grievously injured damaged physically psychologically otherwise and of course the the disaster that these wars have meant for the the peoples of the countries where the wars have been fought afghanistan iraq somalia yemen libya and far far beyond now we're talking about seven hundred and forty billion dollars a year. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, now, the uh, how many innocent civilians have been displaced from their homes around the world due to our military interventions over the past nineteen years? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I've, I've alluded to the, the disastrous effects of the wars in, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but I think it is important to, to go into to, to detail. Uh, you know, we have seen, although it's really tailed off, of course, in, in recent years, but there were, you know, the photographs of military personnel, U.S. military personnel who died in, in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere. Um, they number around 15,000 um, U.S. military personnel and U.S. military contractors who've died in, in the post-9-11 wars. And this number is, is uh, dwarfed by the, the number that have, have died in uh, the countries where the wars have been fought. Um, in combat alone, somewhere around 800,000 people have died in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, yeah. Yemen and, and the part of, of Syria where U.S. troops have fought. Um, but that, that's just direct combat deaths. People die, of course, uh, during wars as a result of, of, of famine, as a result of hunger, of, of disease, of the destruction of infrastructure. And if we include those indirect deaths, which are included in, in uh, death calculations across wars, um, the number who've died is somewhere between three and four million people. Um, wow. And, and this is, you know, very difficult to, and should be, along with the, the money that's been squandered, um, should should sadden us to say the least. And and, and I, I struggle to find the right word because I I think people in the United States have not even begun, myself included, have not even begun to reckon with the, the damage that these wars have have inflicted. Uh, including the displacement you asked about uh, by a calculation that I, I put together for the Cost of War Project uh, with a group of, of terrific students from American University where I teach. 
we estimated that in the eight most violent conflicts, the eight most violent wars where U.S. troops have fought since 2001, around 37 million people have been displaced from their homes. 37 wow. million people, which is uh, more people displaced than in any war since the beginning of the 20th century, with the exception of World War II. And our, our calculation was actually very conservative. Um, 37 million, just but by the way, is you know, for, for, for context, is, is about the size of uh, the state of California. It's about the size of the populations of Texas and Virginia combined, about actually the size of all the residents of Canada. Um, but again, a, a very conservative estimate of the total number of people displaced since 2001 in the eight, just the eight most violent conflicts where U.S. troops have fought. Um, the total actually may reach into the 50 million or more, which actually would rival the, the scale of displacement during World War II itself. Now, President Trump has taken an anti-interventionist stand with regard to America's foreign policy and called for the withdrawal of uh, some of those troops. But hasn't he also had a very friendly relationship to arms manufacturers? So how does that work out? He has, uh, in a complicated fashion, as, as usual, with uh, President Trump, especially given his, his rhetorical uh, uh, representations. Um, Trump if you can understand in, them. Yes, exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, in the lead up to the election, he actually criticized the, the arms manufacturers and said, you know, they're the ones who don't want to see an end to the endless wars. They want to uh, see these wars continue. And he, he of course, was exactly right, as, as he is every once in a while, sort of like a, I've been saying for a while, like a stop clock. You know, twice a day, he's he's right on time. Um, the the weapons manufacturers have been benefiting immensely from from the post 9/11 wars to the tune of you know tens of billions of dollars every year. Just individual contractors like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon, uh, you know the, the the company, the major weapons manufacturer that um, on whose board the. the General, um, who is now nominated to be the the, the next uh, secretary of the, the Pentagon, uh, sits on the, the board of Raytheon. Um, but of course, at the same time, like almost everything, Trump is tremendously hypocritical uh, because he uh, has pushed the, the the size of the U.S. military budget to extremes not not even seen at the height of of the Cold War when the U.S. was facing. Uh, another superpower, another empire. Um, and we have to ask, you know, $740 billion a year, and that, that's just uh, the, the part, uh, the, the, actually the total military budget, if you include uh, spending on nuclear weapons and, and military spending in other uh, government agencies, uh, actually gets you somewhere around $1 trillion or, or more dollars a year. But, what, you know, what is this spending for? Uh, what, what threats? Uh, merit this level of spending? And I think the answer is none. Um, Was Obama any better in, in this uh, regard? Not a, whole, not a whole lot. In some ways, he was, of course, worse. Um, the, the, the military budget did not reach the same heights during the Obama administration, but he pretty much continued uh, the, the pattern of war. He withdrew uh, most, but again, not all troops from, 
from Iraq, um, there was over the course of the administration a, a, a drawdown of of um, most troops from Afghanistan, but again, a, a, a thousands of troops and, and a collection of bases remained in Afghanistan. But in many ways, he expanded the the, the, the reach of the the drone program, as, as many people know, um, and and more surreptitious means of of waging war. Um, I would say that, that that there actually is a, a small silver lining to uh, the the surreptitious ways of waging war, um, sort of ironically, and and to Trump's comments about about the the weapons manufacturers who want to see a continuation of the endless wars. You know, why did Trump say that? He said it because he knew it was good politics. He knew it was helpful language in uh, his attempt to to seek reelection because. There, much of his, his base, in fact, is is anti-interventionist. There is a, a kind of libertarian and, and republican, um, anti-imperialist wing um, that that has wanted to see an end to the endless wars, and he's done relatively little to to bring them to an end, other than withdrawing small numbers of troops from Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but not bringing an end to the wars. Um, and similarly, the, the, the expansion of, of covert forms of waging war that we saw in the Obama administration beginning or continuing uh, on, on trends we saw in the George W. Bush administration, and Trump has only continued this pattern further. You know, I think this reflects the difficulty that U.S. presidents now face in waging large-scale conflicts, um, and this is because the, the majority of people in the United States are sick of, and tired of war. They, they want to see an end to the endless wars. Um, so U.S. presidents, U.S. administrations, uh, the, the military itself are having to work harder and in more covert, surreptitious ways to, to wage war, which, which ultimately I think is a good sign. That also means they have to spend more money on it. We only have a couple of, of minutes back. left, and I want to address yeah. one other thing. Uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, military operations in, in Latin America uh, has usually been described as anti-communist, but you point out, and I was really surprised by this, that we've invaded Canada at least 11 times and that the military maintained plans to invade it into the 1930s. Indeed, and that, that again, is, is just part of the... the Larger list of, of countries that 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 the United States military has has invaded or fought wars in, um, uh, and uh, shows that that from independent U.S. elites, U.S. leaders, um, which and it's important to point out that I've mentioned U.S. leaders who from from independence to today have predominantly been, you know, wealthy elite white guys like me. Um, that, that from independence, the United States government and its leaders have sought to expand the, the territory that the United States has controlled. And why, why have they done that? Not just for the sake of controlling territory, but of course, almost always um, to advance capitalist interests of one kind or another, often very specific uh, capitalist corporate interests, um, but also the, the interests of of individual entrepreneurs or industries, um, and this has been a consistent pattern from independence to the present. That these wars have not just been fought for the sake of war or for the glory of war, although politicians have used them to advance their their political.
careers, uh, they have frequently been used to advance uh, corporate interests, capitalist interests of various kinds, um, and, and indeed have, have often done so, while U.S. taxpayers have been used to, uh, to, to support these efforts and, 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 again, using the language of Eisenhower, stolen from, from taxpayers. To, and we have um, to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of time. David Vine is a professor of anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. His latest book, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, published by the University of California Press. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern, who prepared today's interview. And thanks as well to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and executive producer Jesse Lent for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. You'll find links to all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And you can write me uh, at my email address, LeonardLopate at WBAI.org, if you want to send me a comment or just want to say hello. Before I sign off, I want to ask you one last time for your support for the station. If you care about keeping community radio alive on your local radio dial, please go online to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 right now to show your support. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution in the name of London Lopez at large, we would be delighted to send you a free copy of the book we've been discussing today, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State by my guest, Professor David Vine, as our way of saying thank you for your support. Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large and from all of us at the station, thank you very much. And then I, I hope you'll join us again on Monday when Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes will discuss her book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. We had some technical difficulties during the last time Dr. Sykes was here and the interview was cut short. So we have asked her to make a return visit so we can give this fascinating subject the full hour it deserves. And I don't think you're going to want to miss it. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. This is WBAI.